You are now listening to the July 9th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have 12 Apostles, Sermon, and Equipping the Saint. First, let's begin with 12 Apostles. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston. Today, we will continue on with our new program called 12 Apostles of Jesus. Many people came to hear the teachings of Jesus. So Jesus got on Peter's boat and began speaking to the crowd from the boat. After teaching, he commanded Peter, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Peter replied, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. When he went to the deep water and cast the net, he caught a great amount of fish, so much so that the nets began to break. Peter must have been astounded by Jesus' teaching from his boat and must have been amazed by the miracle when he obeyed Jesus' command to cast the nets in the deep water. We can surmise his astonishment from the way he addressed Jesus. Initially, Peter called Jesus Master, but then he changed it to Lord. He exclaimed, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Then Jesus responded, as shown in Mark chapter 1, verse 17, And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. At that moment, Peter left everything and became Jesus' disciple. Three years had passed since then. Peter could have never imagined the things that would happen to him during those three years. Most recently, he denied Jesus three times, as Jesus had predicted. A rooster crowed as if to confirm Peter's denials. Subsequent to that traumatic incident, Jesus died on the cross and was buried. All of Jesus' disciples were scattered. Perhaps Peter thought the past three years were but a dream. Dejected and discouraged, he put everything behind him and went back to being a fisherman. Even that did not go well. He didn't catch any fish at all. Then Jesus, who had risen from the dead, appeared to Peter. From the shore, he called out, Lower your nets! to the right of the boat. Peter and the others did not recognize it was Jesus, but they had nothing to lose, so they cast the net to the right side of the boat as they were told. They caught 153 fish. Does this scene remind you of something that had happened before? It looks very similar to what happened when Jesus first called Peter three years ago. When Jesus met Peter for the first time, Peter had not caught anything all night long. Then Jesus commanded Peter to go to the deep water. When he obeyed, Peter caught so many fish that the nets almost burst open. Jesus was recreating the same scenario on purpose. Three years ago, Jesus called Peter and he commanded Peter, Until today you were a fisher, but from now on, you will become a fisher of men. But after three years, 
Peter lost the will to carry out that calling and went back to his old way of life. So Jesus recreated the scene when he first called Peter and reminded him of that calling. Peter, you are a fisher of men. Jesus calls us for the same purpose even today. My beloved heart and soul gospel ministry listeners, my sons and my daughters, you are fishers of men. Pastor Rick Warren said this, Faith in Jesus must be personal, but at the same time, it must not be private. That's right. Meeting Jesus is personal as it happens to each of us as a single individual. At the same time, it must not be private such that we keep it to ourselves. We need to share that faith with others. If we experience the goodness of Jesus, we must spread his goodness to others. Just as Jesus called Peter as a fisher of men, Jesus is calling us to be fisher of men. I hope that we will become fishers of men so that the Savior Jesus Christ will shine through us. Peter reached the land after catching 153 fish by obeying Jesus' command. Jesus had already started a fire with charcoal. With the fish they caught, he prepared breakfast for his disciples. Perhaps Jesus prepared a fire to bring Peter back to the time when he denied Jesus three times. In the courtyard at the time, there was a fire, and next to that fire, he denied Jesus. He even swore that he did not know Jesus and even condemned him. Most likely, Peter was not able to raise his head to see Jesus and could not touch the breakfast. Peter must have been so ashamed of himself, he did not dare look at Jesus. Then Jesus did something wonderful. It is said in John chapter 21, verse 13, Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and the fish likewise. Jesus gave bread and fish to Peter, who was dejected and ashamed. You must be hungry. Eat while they are warm. Can you imagine the hands that were offering the food? They were the hands that had been nailed on the cross. It symbolized that Jesus still loved Peter no matter what. Then Jesus asked Peter three times, Do you love me? Why did Jesus ask Peter three times? Some say that when Jesus asked Peter the first two times, it was in the context of love, that being of agape. But Peter answered in the context of love between a friend, filio. So Jesus asked Peter again in the context of filio to accommodate his level of willingness. However, in the first century Koine Greek, the dialect they spoke at the time, the words agape and filio were used interchangeably. To illustrate, when God loves the world in John chapter 3, verse 16, God loves with agape. But in John chapter 16, verse 27, it says that God loves the world with filio. The word agape and filio were used interchangeably when God described his love for Jesus. Then, why did Jesus ask Peter, Do you love me? three times? Simply, it was because Peter denied Jesus three times, so Jesus' intention 
was to help Peter cleanse out his shame and be healed completely from the incident in the evening before Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus healed Peter with his grace and reinstated him to become a rock upon which to build his church. Peter wrote the following in his last letter in 2 Peter. From 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, we read, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. In his last letter, Peter confessed and acknowledged that he grew in the grace of Jesus. That is why he commands us, the disciples of future generations, to follow Jesus just the same way as he did. Grow in His grace. What you see in your life now is not all, so do not despair. You will be newly transformed in Jesus' grace and will grow more beautifully. Even though you may feel shaky right now, eventually you will grow to be an unmovable rock in His grace. We pray that we will all be healed and will grow in the grace of Jesus. We now bring today's program to a closure. Quoting Clement's testimony, Eusebius described how Peter subsequently died on the cross following in Jesus' footsteps. He said that before Peter was executed on the cross, he was forced to watch his wife, who was also a believer, being executed on the cross first. Peter then said to his dying wife, Remember Jesus. When it was his turn to be executed, Peter requested to be put on the cross upside down because he did not deserve to die in the same way as Jesus died. So he was martyred on the cross upside down as he wished. That final scene on earth shows us Apostle Peter as the rock, just as Jesus had commanded. Beloved heart and soul gospel ministry listeners, Jesus has great plans for us, just as he had great plans for Peter. Jesus calls on us to be the fishers of men today, just as he called Peter to be a fisher of men. Jesus heals us in his grace and develops us to be the unshakable rocks for his ministry. We pray that we will all be able to give our lives to the Lord as Apostle Peter did. This concludes today's program. We'll see you next week as we continue our program, 12 Apostles of Jesus.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is coming together for the sake of those without the gospel. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. We'll dive right in, starting with the texts. And I'm just going to read them all in succession from the start. Starting in Psalm 67, then we'll move on. I'll have them on the screen, too, if you'd like to just follow along that way, or if you are able to turn fast enough to, to go that way. I trust these texts, many or most are familiar to you, but they will form the foundation for everything else that follows. The first is Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. From there, we go to Jesus' final words to his disciples in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Then to Jesus' final prayer before he went to the cross in John 17, starting in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Now two more next to Paul at the end of his letter to the church at Rome. Some of his final words in that letter, Romans 15, verse 18. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. And then 
Our last text takes us to the final book of the Bible as John envisions eternity future in Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So these five texts, along with many other places in Scripture, collectively lead us to these four truths. Number one, the ultimate goal of God is His glory enjoyed and exalted among all nations. The ultimate goal of God. This is what God is about. God is about His glory being enjoyed and exalted among all the nations. And we could go from cover to cover in Scripture seeing this truth, but just think about our first and last text, Psalm 67, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Who wrote that? God did. God wants His glory to be enjoyed and exalted among all the peoples, all of them, all the nations. Which is why all of history is headed toward the day, Revelation chapter 7, when a multitude we can't even imagine, can't even number from every nation, all tribes, all peoples, all languages, will sing this song of praise and give God glory. Why is history headed toward this day? Because that's where God wants all of history to head, toward the enjoyment and exaltation of His glory among all the nations. And let's be clear, when we see the word nations in these texts, it's not talking about nations like we might think of geopolitical entities or countries today, which did not exist in the same way in Psalm 67 or Revelation 7 or Matthew 28 for that matter. When Jesus says to make disciples of all nations, and trust we know he's using the term there, ethne, from which we get ethnic groups. You look back in Psalm 67, there are actually three different Hebrew words for nations and peoples. It's why Revelation 7 talks about nations, tribes, peoples, languages. So the picture we have in Scripture is all the ethnic groups of the world, all the tribes and peoples and languages, what we commonly call people groups today, which biblical anthropological scholars estimate there are at least 11,000 distinct ethnic groups. Some say over 16,000 distinct people groups in the world. And the ultimate goal of God is His glory enjoyed and exalted by every single one of them. That's the first truth. And it leads right into the second truth. The ultimate goal of every Christian and every church 
is to enjoy and exalt God's glory among all nations. So if the ultimate goal of God is for his glory to be enjoyed and exalted among all nations, and we are the people of God, and we are among the nations, then this is our ultimate goal. Your goal, my goal in life is to enjoy the glory of God. And that is the greatest news in the world. The ultimate purpose, goal of every Christian and every church is to enjoy and exalt God's glory among all the nations. Which leads to truth number three. God's plan for the accomplishment of this goal is the Great Commission. So this is the plan Jesus outlines for the spread of God's glory among the nations. The proclamation of the gospel, the formation of disciples, and the multiplication of the church. Just think about how this plan played out in the New Testament. So picture, we remember, we won't turn there, but remember Acts 13, the church at Antioch, worshiping, fasting, and praying. And the Holy Spirit says, set apart Paul and Barnabas to go where? Where the gospel had not yet gone, to more people in more places. So they went out, these kind of pink arrows represent them going out, down to Cyprus here. And what did they do when they got there? They proclaimed the gospel, they made disciples, and they gathered them together as a church. And they moved north up into Pisidian Antioch, down into Iconium, Lystra, Derby, and all of these places. What are they doing? They're proclaiming the gospel, they're making disciples, they're planting the church. They're doing what Jesus said to do. And in this way, more people in more places are enjoying and exalting the glory of God. God's plan for the accomplishment of this goal is the Great Commission, which leads to the fourth and final truth that I'm convinced most Christians and pastors are completely missing. Truth number four. The Great Commission is not a general command to make disciples among as many people as possible. The Great Commission is a specific command to make disciples among all the nations. In Matthew 28, Jesus did not say, go and make a lot of disciples. Jesus said, go and make disciples, pantata ethne, of all the nations, ethnic groups, people groups. And we know this was specific because Revelation 7 makes clear that disciples will one day have been made from every nation, every tribe, every people, and every language group. And because of the way the Spirit of God directed the people of God, the church in the New Testament. So come back to that map that we looked at just a moment ago, where we see this happening. The kind of purple arrows are them traveling back. And you remember they come back at the end of Acts 14 to Antioch and they encourage the church there. And then they set out on another journey. Well, I say they, a uh, little conflict. Now we have two missionary teams. And uh, Paul's team sets out from Antioch and goes north with Silas, and they pick up Timothy along the way. And you'll notice they're going in some of the same places they had been, strengthening the churches there. And around Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 10, 
Paul starts to go in one direction, the Spirit stops him, starts to go in another direction, the Spirit stops him, and he has a vision of a man from Macedonia one night saying, come over here and help us, up in the northwestern part of this map. And they concluded that's where God is leading us. And so they go northwest, up into places we recognize from our Bibles, in Philippi and Thessalonica, down to Corinth, which we've heard already in this conference, over to Ephesus, and down into Jerusalem. And what's happening in all these different places? Disciples are being made in new places. Churches are being planted in new places. The glory of God is being enjoyed and exalted among more people in more places. They come down to Jerusalem, then back up to Antioch. They encourage the church there. That then leads to a third journey. Paul leaves Antioch and starts retracing his step, encouraging all these different churches. But you'll notice on this map, he doesn't go anywhere new. Until he gets to Corinth and he decides to write a letter. And what is the letter he writes in Corinth? The letter to the church at Rome. Romans is written here at this time. Why would he write to Rome right here? Well, I'm glad you asked. Look at this map with me. So it's a little harder to see, but here's Antioch over here. Here's Corinth right there. And here's Rome. So why is he writing to Rome? He's on the way to Jerusalem. He's saying, I'm taking an offering down to Jerusalem. And then my plan is, once I get there, I'm going to come to you. Because I want to help, ask you to help me get where? To Spain. So why did Paul write Romans? Well, he tells us in Romans 15, there's no more work for me to do in these regions. That is an absurd statement. We have heard from 1 Corinthians for crying out loud. Are we to think, yeah, not a lot of work to do there. There was a ton of work to do in Corinth and these regions, but there were Christians and churches doing the work there. And over here in Spain, where Paul was trying to go, there were no Christians and no churches. There was no gospel, no word of God to do the work of God. And Paul knew Jesus had commissioned his church to go to all the nations, to all the people, groups, and places. So he kept pressing on to places where Jesus was not known why? Because the ultimate goal of God is his glory and glory enjoyed and exalted among all the peoples in all the places. And the Great Commission is not a general command to make disciples among as many people as possible where we live. The Great Commission is a specific command to make disciples among all the nations. Which then leads us to three problems. As we hear these truths from God's word in this room today, in a world where, number one, over three billion people are currently unreached by the gospel. Where about 3.2 billion people today live in Romans 15, Spain-like ignorance of the name and gospel of Jesus. 
which leads to problem number two. The church is practically ignoring the people and places most unreached by the gospel. The church, our churches, are practically ignoring the three billion people who need the gospel most. And this statement is not just anecdotal. I could show you the research, give you the numbers. I'll let just one summarize the picture. We as Christians in our country spend most of our money on ourselves, but we do give. We give collective billions of dollars to our churches, most of which we spend on making our churches more comfortable for ourselves. And then out of that money, we give to churches and ministries, we give billions of dollars to missions, to gospel and church work and other places in the world, what we would call missions giving. But did you know, we've done the research, that approximately 99% of our missions giving, so not talking about all of our resources or not even all of our giving in the church, like specifically that which we're giving to missions, approximately 99% of missions giving goes to people and places in the world that already have access to the gospel, to green and yellow places on this map. In Latin America, Sub-Saharan Africa, parts of Europe. If I had time, I could also show you that these are the places we're sending most missionaries to. Now, let's be clear. Is there work to be done in those places? Absolutely there is. Is it good to come alongside brothers and sisters in those places? Without question it is. But open your eyes, brothers and sisters, in the name of missions, we are actually ignoring the Great Commission. The specific command Jesus has given us to make disciples among all the peoples of the world. We're giving to missions, patting ourselves on the back as we ignore the Great Commission. That's why Radical created an urgent initiative to get behind like good, strong, biblically faithful gospel work in the red. And we're not the only ones doing it. You're here, you see others in this conference who are doing it. Because at some point, collectively, we've got to decide to rectify this great imbalance and obey this great commission. We've got to start mobilizing billions of dollars and tens of thousands of missionaries from our churches to get the gospel to the red. Because to follow this, this is problem number three, the number of unreached people is higher today than ever before and will continue to increase until the church decides to change. Did you hear that? Like, think about it. The world population is increasing, including the population among unreached people and places. The current rate of missions, giving, and sending is nowhere close to keeping up with those population increases, particularly among 
the unreached, which means, so follow this, unless we decide to change how we're approaching the Great Commission in our churches, more people than ever before in history will go to hell without ever even hearing about the King of Heaven. This is our day. This is where we're sitting right now. In this room. Do we realize this? In this gospel-rich room. I was talking with Ligon lunch. And this is, this is such a gospel gloriously gospel-rich room. We have said and spoken and heard and sung and prayed the gospel hundreds of times over the last 24 hours alone. And right now we're pausing to think about billions of people who are an ever-increasing number who have never heard it once. Yes, the point is not to feel guilt that we have the gospel like this. We feel grace that we have the gospel like this. And we realize that this grace is not intended by our God to stop with us. It is intended by our God to spread through us. That this grace is not intended to center on us, but on the glory of our God among all of the nations. And so we bring it home to two conclusions and one plea. And I want to make these as personal as possible to the brothers and sisters in this room. First conclusion. If we are not living and dying to make disciples of unreached nations, then we are disobeying the Great Commission and disregarding the goal of God. And yes, I am tempted to give caveats at this point. That of course this doesn't mean everyone is called to move and work among the unreached. God sent out two people from Antioch. Paul told other people to stay in those regions to work. Not everyone in Rome was supposed to pack their bags and go to Spain. But all of them, all of us, every person in whom the Spirit of God dwells has been commissioned by God to live and give and work and pray and die with zeal to see disciples made and churches multiplied and the glory of God enjoyed and exalted among all the nations. If you are not living toward this end, if you are not leading your family toward this end, raising up your kids toward this end, if you're not leading the church that you serve in toward this end, then you are disobeying the Great Commission and disregarding the goal of your God. And if there is any 
guilt there, then let us not justify ourselves in it. That's certainly not what the gospel compels. By the grace of God and the gospel, let us repent and realize conclusion number two, by God's grace, you and your church have a unique and significant part to play in seeing all the nations enjoy and exalt God. You just feel this right where you're sitting right now. You and your church have a unique and significant part to play in seeing nations, peoples come to enjoy and exalt God. Regardless of the size, location, or makeup of your church, if there are people there who have the Word of God and the Spirit of God, then you and they together have a unique part to play in the global goal of God. He has not saved you or your church to sideline you in his eternal aims. You think, well, what can I, or my family, or my church really do? Like, what kind of question is that? There are three billion people who haven't heard the gospel. There is no shortage of things to do. So start doing it. Let one of these organizations help you. Let Radical help you. Whatever, anybody. Just you and your church have a unique, significant part to play. So let's play it to his glory and the good of the nations. Which leads to one plea. And I, I don't believe this is my plea. I believe this is Jesus' plea. It's his prayer. For us who believe in him. For us who are together in the gospel. And we know, we've talked about it, it is no secret that we have walked and are walking through divisive days in the church between genuine brothers and sisters in Christ. Which is why one of the five texts we started with was Jesus' prayer for us in John 17. And just look, just look at all the that's in this prayer. Jesus prays, I do not ask, Father, for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, in me, and I in you, that they may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Could it be any clearer? Jesus longs. It's what was on his heart as he's literally pleading before the Father for us to be one so that all the nations and tribes and peoples and languages of the world would know his glory. 
So I want to ask four pastors from our church to join me up here as I personally look back on 16 years of Together for the Gospel. I think of brothers in Christ who I did not know when this journey started. When I was sitting there in the Galt House at the very beginning. And over the last 16 years, by God's grace, I've come to know and love these different brothers. And I'm just going to ask each of these four pastors to represent just four of them. So, Nate, you'll be Mark Dever. Congratulations. You are Mark. Arlen, you'll be Al Moeller. Smartest person I know. Carly, you'll be John MacArthur. And then James. James, you're Thabidiana Bouillet. I genuinely love and honor each of these men. Mark, I remember the first time Mark emailed me. I was like, an email from Mark Dever. It was like a one-sentence email. So I wrote out like a, I spent probably four hours <laughs> constructing a long email. Ended up pressing send on two sentences. Uh, I was just so nervous. And ever since then, uh, all the way to his counsel to me in ministry after midnight last night, I thank God for you, brother. I stand in awe when I see how Al has led Southern Seminary over decades through all kinds of trials to train strong church leaders for churches here and around the world. I stand in awe when I see how John MacArthur has pastored his church across 50 years. I remember first T4G, I was sitting there and uh, I was about to be in my first pastorate like the next week. And uh, he spoke on 40 years of gospel ministry. And, and the fruit of that and the commentaries in my study are evident. And then Thabiti is one of my favorite expositors of Scripture. I love listening to Thabiti walk through a text in God's Word. And he has been a deep encouragement and example to me in a multitude of ways. So I, I love and I honor each of these men. So I want to invite you guys to make a circle over here together by holding onto one another's hands. And in so doing, to give us a picture of the gospel, together for the gospel. But this picture has never been just about them, right? This picture is about us. This picture is about different ones of us who also come from different backgrounds and have different perspectives on a variety of different things. And when we're together for the gospel in a circle like this, looking at each other, it can be really easy to start spending a lot of time focusing on where we are different, on things about which we disagree, and sometimes sharply so. Add on to that a cultural climate that makes us quick 
to accuse or question or distrust or divide from one another, and we can start to lose our hold on each other. All while three billion people around us are being born and living and dying without ever even heard the gospel. I give you a picture of what is happening right now. But we do realize, right, that there is another way to form a circle, that there is another way for these brothers to form a circle holding on to each other's hands? Don't you guys show us a different way? I submit to you today, based on John 17 and all the other texts we've looked at, this kind of together for the gospel changes everything. When we are one, so that we might reach the nations of the world. See, when one brother's eyes are on that starving little boy and girl in Yemen, another brother's eyes are on that frightened family in Afghanistan, another brother's eyes are on that suffering village in Somalia, another brother's eyes are on that imprisoned husband and wife in North Korea, and they know none of them has even heard the name of Jesus, then things change. The grip is just as tight. I would argue it gets tighter because you're working together with urgency to get the gospel, the greatest news in the world, that you know it, and they've never even heard it. And because you know that them hearing it based on John 17 actually depends on you holding on to each other. So I want to plead with you, with us to be together for the gospel like this with our eyes collectively fixed on the goal of our God, the spread of his glory among all the peoples of the earth. And brothers and sisters in Christ, brothers and sisters who by God's grace have the gospel, we have a choice. We can fight hell for the good of the nations, or we can fight each other while the nations go to hell. God help us to come together and stay together for the sake of those without the gospel.
The following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. Just a couple months ago, there was a group of young parents who were playing video games for days as they let their baby sit in its car seat inside its playpen for a couple days without feeding the baby, without changing the baby, and ultimately there was a tragic end to that. When we think about those things, and we think about parents who willfully neglect their children, ultimately we say, that's horrible, that's terrible. But what about those in the church who are spiritual parents of the flocks who willfully neglect their flocks. You know, so often I hear in the discussion of how people choose churches, well, I want to go to this church because of the music or that church because of this or that. And I get phone calls inquiring about this body. And one thing that breaks my heart so often is people don't ask the right questions about the church. They don't ask questions about the Word of God. They don't ask questions about the leadership. Do you have elders? Are they godly elders? Do they meet the requirements in Scripture? And it breaks my heart to see that more often than not, people choose a church based on their own desires rather than what God prescribes in His Word. Well, sometimes people don't know what God prescribes in His Word because they're new believers and they're learning and growing, and that's okay, and they should learn and grow. But some people have been believers for many years, and yet they still do not understand how a church should function, and they voluntarily place themselves in danger under ungodly shepherds, ungodly men who would shepherd them in a way which leads them malnourished and destroyed in terms of the faith. Well, with this in mind, well, how does God lead the church? What do godly churches look like? I think today we're going to see in Titus that Titus was sent there to set in order what remains or to take care of what was lacking ultimately. And what was lacking in the churches in Crete was ultimately godly leadership, godly elders. And I think from Titus chapter 1, we're going to see what does godly leadership look like or what does God prescribe for leadership in the church. And as I shared, leadership is very important. And for the next three weeks, we're going to be going through this idea of leadership in Scripture. We're going to be seeing this week, Lord willing, what an elder is. We're also going to be seeing how God, from verse 5, appoints elders in the church. Then we're going to see the elders' responsibility from Scripture next week, Lord willing, and the responsibility of the congregation to their leaders. And then, Lord willing, the third week, we're going to see the qualifications for elders. Now, some of you are saying, okay, we're going to talk about leadership here for a couple of weeks. I can kind of put it on glide and listen, and I'll be fine, and a couple of weeks we'll tune back in. Well, I want to just encourage you, this is very important to you. It is very important because we are to submit to our leaders in the church. If you look at your bulletin here, it says on the top cover here from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God, and considering their conduct, imitate their faith. So the first thing, we're to be imitating those who lead us. But secondly, we have later on in the same chapter of Hebrews in 13, the writer says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch of your souls. 
So those who lead you need to be godly, otherwise you're in terrible spiritual danger. So you as the flock need to know what godly leadership looks like so that you place yourselves in the right position where God can then nurture you and bring you up in a way that will bring Him glory. Does that make sense? Okay, so hopefully we'll be paying attention in the next few weeks to these qualifications for leaders. And now we didn't just go through and decide, well, what topic should we talk about this week? We'll talk leaders this week. Let's talk marriage next week. We're going through the Word of God, and we're coming to a point in Titus in which he addresses the issue of elders, and I felt it was necessary for us to go through it at this time. Now, with that in mind, what's the context of the book of Titus? The writer is identified in verse 1, as we saw, as the Apostle Paul. And he is writing to his true child in common faith, Titus, chapter 4. We've looked at the book of Titus so far. We've seen that the Apostle Paul explained why he was an apostle. For the faith of the chosen and the knowledge of the truth. Ultimately, for the building up of the body, the faith in Christ, ultimately, and the knowledge of the truth which reveals Christ. And we saw, as we looked at the context earlier, that Titus was a Greek. Galatians 2 points that out. And we don't know when Paul led him to the Lord, but at some time the Apostle Paul came alongside Titus, shared the gospel, and now he is Paul's child in the faith. He led him to the Lord. Now in 2 Corinthians, we see a little bit more about Titus. We see in 2 Corinthians 2.13 that Paul calls him his brother, obviously in the context of the faith. And he also calls him in chapter 8, verse 23, my partner and fellow worker among you. And we see in the book of Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, that Titus was a faithful man who served the Lord under the direction of the Apostle Paul. Now, I've shared this before, but why is Paul writing Titus? We're going to see a little bit of that today. Chapter 1, verse 5, For this reason, Paul writes, I left you in Crete. Obviously, Paul had left Titus in Crete. And he's going to have him do something there. And we see the text in Titus reveals four issues. The first issue we're going to take a look at in depth in the next few weeks is a lack of leadership in the churches in Crete. Again, verse 5. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you might set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Well, obviously, there was a lack of leadership in those churches. But secondly, there were false teachers endangering the flocks. As we see later on in chapter 1, there were these Jewish Gnostics, in a sense, who were upsetting whole households or whole churches. They were factious men, chapter 3. There were people who were threatening the body of Christ. And so there needed to be godly leadership to silence these men from teaching these things. Then thirdly, we see in chapter 2 that Paul writes to address our conduct as believers. Because the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, we should be changed, we should be different. And that same grace is instructing us as believers to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live righteously, upright, and godly in this present age. Looking for the blessed hope and the glorious return of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He purchased us that he would redeem us from every lawless deed, the text says later on in Titus 2. If we've come to faith in Jesus Christ, there's a certain way we should behave within our relationships. So he addresses older men, older women, young women, and he addresses slaves and masters and gives instruction there. 
But throughout the book of Titus, we see one overwhelming theme, the exhortation to the body of Christ to do good deeds to meet pressing needs. We see it throughout each chapter. The false teachers are worthless for any good deed, end of chapter 1. But we as a body of believers should be manifesting the life of Christ in good deeds in the body of Christ. So we see that throughout Thus, the book of Titus is an exhortation to the body of Christ to function within the context of what God is doing in Christ through his grace. So with that in mind, again, I want to encourage you, because we're going to be going through leadership for the next few weeks, to not put it on autopilot and set aside. It's very important. It's important for you because you, if you're going to be obedient to the Word of God and submit to your leaders, you want to put yourself under godly leaders who are shepherding for Christ rather than for their own motives and desires. And I believe today we're going to see a portion of what that looks like. So let's take a look at Titus. Let's turn there together. Titus chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 5, but we'll end at 5 today. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life which God who cannot lie promised long ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. Notice it's God our Savior. To Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and from Christ Jesus our Savior. God is the Savior. Christ Jesus is the Savior. And then our verse today. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you might set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Now, before we get into this passage where we look at the appointment of elders, we need to understand from Scripture, well, what is an elder? What is the biblical term elder? You see it throughout Scripture, so we need to understand that. If we are to submit to the leadership in the church, we need to understand what that leadership looks like. Well, the term elder in our passage in verse 5 and in many other passages is presbuteros. This word has different meanings in different contexts, just like many words have different meanings in different contexts. The word could be used to speak of an elder, someone who is elderly, someone who is older. It could be used to speak of the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, the elders. It was also used in Scripture to speak of the 24 elders before the throne in Revelation. And then more often than not, it is used to speak of the spiritually mature men that God has chosen to lead his church. And that's what we're going to see here. And we're going to see what that means from Scripture. Now, I believe it's really important to realize in Scripture There are some terms that we need to understand. One is elder, presbyteros. There's another term, overseer, episkopos. We get Presbyterian and Episcopal from this, and we're going to see ultimately that presbyteros and episkopos and then shepherd, poimeno, are used interchangeably together in Scripture. But what do I mean by that? There are three terms used in Scripture to describe leadership in the church, and they are used interchangeably. One is elder, one is overseer, and one is shepherd. Take, for instance, our passage in chapter 1 of Titus. Take a look here. He says in verse 5, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you might set in order what remains and appoint elders. And then he goes on down talking about the qualifications, and he says, verse 7, For the overseer must. 
He's using it synonymously, elders and overseers together. Indeed, in Acts 20, verses 17 to 28, which we're going to look at a little later, when we see Paul calling the Ephesian elders unto himself, we see he talks about them as those whom whom the Holy Spirit has appointed as overseers. And he also calls upon them to shepherd the flock, all three portions. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, and we're going to look at this a lot today, so why don't we turn there right now and put your fingers in there also. And notice these terms, elder and overseer and shepherd here. 1 Peter chapter 5. Therefore I exhort the elders among you. Peter's going to exhort the elders among them as your fellow elder. We'll look at that a little later. And the witness of the sufferings of Christ and partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock. Elders, shepherd. And that's poimeno. The flock of God among you, exercising oversight or episcopasing, overseeing. We see these three terms used synonymously in Acts. We see them used synonymously here in First Peter. So ultimately, I believe in Scripture, we see elder, overseer, and shepherd are all synonymous. They're synonymous terms. Now, there are some differences in there. So why the different terms, ultimately? Elder speaks more towards the office. Overseer speaks more towards the office and the duty. And shepherd speaks more towards the duty itself. Does that make sense? Elder, the office. Overseer, the office and duty. Shepherd, the duty. Right? Okay, with that in mind, what do elders, overseers, and shepherds do? And we're praying and we're watching for God to raise up those godly men that he has called to be elders here. What do we do? What should elders be doing? What should you know that we are supposed to do? And any time we talk about elders and shepherding, okay, the microscope's on us, and it should be, right? And you guys should know what we're supposed to do, and you should hold us accountable to that, right? It's for your own protection. Well, what do elders do? We're going to take a look at a bunch of passages here that should help us, but we're going to see this in depth next week, so I'm just going to breeze through it and give you an overview of what elders should do. We had our fingers in First Peter Chapter 5, let's take a look there, First Peter 5. He says, Therefore, I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elders, this is Peter talking, and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and partaker of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. There's a lot there. We could spend the whole day on this passage. Verse 5, you younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. And he goes on, everyone clothe yourselves with humility. So first of all, we see that they are to shepherd by example. They're not to lord over, but they're to shepherd by example. They are to exercise oversight, not under compulsion, eagerly. They are to be focused on the chief shepherd, ultimately. It is the chief shepherd's flock, as we'll see later. It's not the elder's flock. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, and I won't mention this, we'll look at it later. Elders must be able to teach. Obviously, they need to be teaching. And then on the front of your bulletins, remember those who led you, and there's no and there, 
who led you, who spoke the word of God to you. And consider the result of their conduct. Imitate their faith. Leaders lead you by speaking the word of God to you. That's how they lead you. What else does a leader have to give you in terms of spiritual things but what God has revealed in his word? Remember those who led you and spoke the word of God to you. They didn't, but spoke it. Not and, but spoke the word of God to you. And imitate what? Their demeanor, their actions? No, imitate their faith. They work hard by instructing with the word of God. First Thessalonians 5. Chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, and I'll read this to you. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. So elders have charge over the flock, and they give instruction, and they labor among them, and the congregation is exhorted to appreciate them, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Because they give you the Word of God. They work hard instructing from the Word of God. Now, elders also rule. There, All elders are going to rule in some shape or another. Some elders will rule and also work hard at preaching and teaching. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. Let the elders, the presbyteros, who rule well, be considered worthy of a double honor. That's double pay, basically, he's saying there if they rule well, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. All elders are to shepherd, watch over, to rule over, not in an evil way, but by example. But there are some elders, like myself, who work hard at preaching and teaching because God has given me a pastor-teacher gift. So then elders rule over and work hard. Elders also feed the flock the word of God and protect the flock from threats. Acts 20, let's turn there. Acts 20, verse 28. Paul is giving his last words to the Ephesian elders. And at this point, after sharing his example of faithfulness, faithfully declaring the word of God day in and day out to the Ephesians, faithfully being an example of one who did not consider his life as anything that he might finish the course, the ministry that God had given him, he gives the commands to these elders. This is the command for elders who will never see him again. This is what Paul says to them. Acts twenty twenty eight. Be on guard, or actually literally take heed, for yourselves and for all the flock, among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. We'll look at that later. Very important. To shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Very valuable flock. Very valuable flock. I know after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And folks, I don't see this happening in churches these days. I don't see elders admonishing people and encouraging them concerning the threats To the church these days, elders are to be watching out for the flock. There are dangers from without and dangers from within, and they are to be watching out. And just a side note, I don't see elders with the heart of Paul who are heartbroken over what they see in churches these days. Elders need to be shepherding the word of God and watching out over the flock. Well, elders also manage the church. They take care of God's church. 
1 Timothy chapter 3, as he gives all the requirements for overseers, he talks about managing the family, verse 4, he must be one who manages his own family well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Elders take care of God's tremendously valuable possession, his people that he spilled his own blood for. Very, very important. Very important. Elders are stewards over the flock. Titus chapter 1, verse 7, we want to go back there. He says, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. He has a stewardship of the flock that is put in his midst to protect and feed for a time. We'll go through these verses in a little more in depth next week, but Hebrews 13, verse 17, and here we go. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Folks, you want to be under good leadership because God commands you to obey your leaders. You don't want to be under ungodly leadership. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? For they watch over your felt needs. No, they watch over your souls. They are watching over your souls, your spiritual condition. Elders watch over the spiritual condition of the flock. We're not here to take care of all your physical needs. We're here to watch over your spiritual condition and to feed you the words of life which affect you eternally. For they watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Very, very serious. Thus, overseers, elders, shepherds, look after guarding the flock in the context of feeding them the word of God, protecting them from threats to the word from within and without. So in a nutshell, elders, overseers, shepherds, you know, an elder is a shepherd, a pastor, An overseer is a shepherd, a pastor. They are men in whom the Holy Spirit has created a desire, we'll see, to look out for, protect, and feed, and lead the flock, the unadulterated Word of God.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.